Hi, everybody. I'm Patrick McEnroe, and this is Holding Court. Hello. Patrick McEnroe here in another edition of Holding Court. Thank you to all my avid listeners. Uh, you can reach me, as always, at Patrick McEnroe on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Patrick.McEnroe. And we're going to ra- dive into a range of topics here today with my old buddy, Peter Bodo, the great author, uh, tennis aficionado for many, many years. He's written multiple books on tennis, including two with yours truly. We did the Tennis for Dummies together years ago, which was a big success. And then my book, Hard Court, Hard Court Confidential, which I wrote right after I got off the tour. Uh, Pete co-wrote that with me as well. He's also written a couple of books on the great Pete Sampras. Uh, he's actually, you know, he's an avid fisherman, which he tells me about uh, quite often when we're, we're shooting the shit together and just chatting. He's a big time fisherman. And, and you know, Pete, as I was going through your bio, I didn't realize that you'd actually written a book back in the day on fishing. Is this right? The Atlantic salmon. Tell me yeah, about that. Atlantic, yeah. The Atlantic salmon handbook. Well, it's kind of a, a beginner's kind of guide to Atlantic salmon fishing, which is a very, it's uh, it's a sport full of a lot of mystique and tradition and a lot of old wives tales. And myths. <laughs> so I kind of figured, some of it up by simplifying it for people. Well, every time we, uh, you know, oftentimes when we stay connected over the year, you're, you're at different times of year, you're like, yeah, I'm heading up, do some, uh, do some fishing. You're a New Yorker like I am. Of course, you've lived around these parts for uh, your, your entire life. Although I know you were born uh, overseas in Austria, your Hungarian parents. How old were you when you came to the U.S.? You were young, right? Yeah, four. Four. Four, four, fresh off the boat at four and ready to go. <laughs> and you're still ready to go years later. By the way, you can follow Pete at P.T. Bodo. That's P-T-B-O-D-O at Twitter. He has written extensively over the years for Tennis Magazine, uh, now which is now Tennis.com. We should talk about that, too. And, of course, for ESPN, he was a regular columnist for years there as well. So he's covered it all. He's been, even when I was playing, he was uh, covering tennis. So that tells you how old both of us are. Um, but we're going to get into a couple of things today. Number one, I just want to get your thoughts, Pete, on what's transpired uh, at the most recent tournaments, the year-end championships for the women, the Paris Masters for the men. Uh, and then I know one of the reasons that you wanted to talk to me was to discuss what has happened with Naomi Osaka. So we'll get into that quite a bit as well. And then one of the things I've been having a lot of fun with on the podcast is topics from you fans on Twitter that uh, I post uh, any potential topics. So I've seen quite a few uh, potential topics come in. So we'll get into that in segment three of this uh, along with Pete. He's going to stick around and join me for that. But let's discuss first, Pete, you know, the year-end championships for the women, which was down in Fort Worth, Texas, to just horrendous crowds, uh, which is which is uh, one topic uh, that I think we should we need to discuss. Uh, but let's talk about what happened on the court, which, first of all, uh, we saw Caroline Garcia win the title. She very nearly lost uh, early on in the tournament. And what an amazing, I guess, six months for her, right? Since she qualified at the tournament in Cincinnati before the U.S. Open, had a great U.S. U.S. Open now finishes in the top five of the world, and I believe she started the year. Was she just? I think she may have even been just outside the top hundred. She was definitely well outside the top fifty. An amazing turnaround. Well, somewhere Andy Murray must be smiling because we all remember when, when I think <laughs> right, when yeah. Murray first laid on, laid eyes on her. He predicted she was going to be a number one or a Grand Slam champion. I forget which. And apparently that has really come to pass. She's playing so well. It's actually that she fired a coach. I guess she figured, or I get her coach quit the team, I suppose, because of dissension or it wasn't fun anymore. But uh, yeah, she's doing so well. She can go it on her own. It was uh, it was a good effort on her part, but it also shows a little bit the the turmoil on, on, among the women below the very top rank. Yeah, and then obviously you had two of the American women there, Jess Pagula, uh, who had a great win in uh, in Mexico leading into the year-end championship, championships, but then went 0 for 3. Coco Goff, I watched a couple of her matches, Pete. She, she, I think she was 4 or 5 coming in. I think Garcia and Sabalenka, who reached the final, moved ahead of her. Uh, so I think I think she's going to finish six or seven, which is still a great achievement for her as a teenager. But she looked physically and maybe more important 
importantly, mentally spent uh, watching her on the court. It just looked like she just played too much tennis this year and it caught up to her because it was a pretty disappointing uh, performance for her, I thought, in the year-end championships down in Texas. Yeah, well, you know, it was her first full year of eligibility to play on a tour in terms of the age restrictions and things. So she was like uh, the kid who got led into the candy store and she ate a lot of candy. So the sugar rush, you know, kind of dissolved after a while. And I agree with you. I think she didn't have, you know, the the needle was pretty close to uh, approaching empty by the time the finals came around. But uh, it's a good learning experience for her, I guess. What do we make, Pete? Again, it's uh, Peter Bodo here joining me, the author of a couple of books with me and plenty of others as well, including, as I said, on Pete Sampras. So you should look him up on Amazon, Peter or Pete Bodo, B-O-D-O. Um, what do we make of the fact that the attendance was just abysmal down there? I mean, the first couple of days was a downright embarrassment. At least by the end, it looked like the lower bowl of the arena, which I believe uh, seats 14,000. looked like they covered up the top section. Uh, and I think they had crowds of about 6,000 on the, on the, towards the finals of the event, which is decent. Um, but you know, I know that, you know, I've been on top of this Peng Shui story, as you know, Pete, and, 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 I, and I credit the WTA for taking a strong stand uh, on her situation and then with uh, the Chinese Tennis Association. Of course, because of COVID, no one is playing in China anyway, so the question is basically moot at the moment. But it, it's the WTA taking must be, be taking an enormous financial hit because those crowds down there um, were not good. Yeah, no, I think they had to back it up with a lot of their own money. I think there's a lot of turmoil uh, in the WTA these days. I think the New York Times covered that uh, in a couple of pieces, including one by our our mutual buddy, Chris Clary. Uh, I believe just today it ran, or maybe yesterday, about the... uh, you know, interview with Steve Simon and yes. the challenges facing. You know, they got themselves into a real jam uh, with the Peng Shui thing. And while I absolutely 100% agree with their attitude and stuff, I don't see, you know, the exit ramp for them, you know, because they've kind of dug in and said, until we talk to her and get satisfaction, nothing's going to happen. Meanwhile, she's retired. She is presumably, according to Simon, actually living, uh, you know, presumably happily in, in Beijing. And so, you know, it, we've come to a horrible impasse here and the hit they took in uh, canceling their Chinese tournaments and stuff is, is just overwhelming. I almost wonder now if the Chinese aren't trying to punish the WTA knowing what kind of perilous financial straits they're in. Yeah, I think the interesting thing will be what happens if and when China reopens, right? Because they've got this COVID, you know, no COVID, the lockdowns there have been uh, scary. So there's no professional events of any kind happening there in the, in the, in the international st- sporting stage, including tennis, including the ATP. The ATP has said absolutely nothing, which is another issue, which I'm, you know, been been giving them a lot of heat for, and I believe deservedly so, because they've just completely dropped the ball as far as supporting the WTA, which I believe they should do. But that being said, uh, we'll we'll sort of find out what's really going to happen uh, when when China opens up a bit and allows uh, you know tennis tournaments or other events uh, at Formula One, whatever it may be, to take place as far as COVID restrictions go. Uh, so we'll see, and I think then we'll then we'll find out how far the WTA are willing to go. But I agree with you, Peter. I. I uh, applaud Steve Simon. I've had him on the podcast here, and he and this was months ago, and he stuck with it. And uh, you're and you're right about the WTA. I mean, they're they're in tough times financially. Uh, obviously, the majors are better than ever, where the men and women play together. Even the Masters events that are shared events doing well. But uh, when the women's events are on their own, it certainly appears to be a lot more of a struggle. And this is in in stark contrast, and I've been talking about this on my Twitter feed for the last month or so. I mean, watching these tournaments, Pete, in, in Europe, Basel, Vienna, you know, Paris, go down the list, all these tournaments in Europe, these men's tournaments, absolutely 100% packed, sold out at every level. It's been amazing to watch in the last four or five weeks. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. You know, and I think the interesting thing is that the, uh, you know, the, the grail really is greater integration of the two tours. Uh, I don't know if 
or how much it would hurt the ATP to play regular tournaments in conjunction with the women. Obviously, there are logistical problems involved with that if you're going to have full draws and stuff. But what we've seen really is that, you know, the, the combined events, you know, uh, Miami, Indian Wells, or, you know, in Madrid, they kind of bring, um, bring you know, a, a whole different vibe to the situation there. And I think they really, really helped the women quite a bit. This has been an ongoing, this has been a constant story. The, the, you know, men have always drawn regular weekly tournaments among the men have always drawn better than the women. And that's one of the reasons the ATP has been reluctant to get into a Mm -hmm. a more formal relationship with the, with the WTA because it's saying, look, I mean, our guys are doing so much better week to week that we don't really want to give up all that revenue just, you know, to, to bring the two tours together. So I don't really know what the solution is. I think strengthening the women's tour certainly is, is one of them, but we need, clearly we need stars. And it's also, you know, another interesting piece you just wrote very recently uh, was about the coaching situation in women's tennis um, and that the fact that there aren't that many female coaches. So we could do a whole podcast on that. Uh, But it's sort of, to me, it's similar to, well, women's tennis has got to be, you know, supported more. It's got to be more popular. Um, Well, there's the economic side of it, which comes into play that obviously this is different from the coaching situation where there's not that many female coaches coaching on the women's tour um but i you know it's it's hard to know what, what comes first i guess is what you know the women it the, the tour is trying to do more as you noted in your most recent article on tennis.com about getting more females into the coaching ranks but uh it's like well how do we get more prize money into the smaller wta events well you need sponsorship you need interest you need female coaches on the other side willing to you know, continue to travel many weeks of the year. And at some point, like, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but if they, they don't want to drink, what do you do next? It seems like there's a similar situation there uh, about both of these issues. Yeah, there is. I mean, women have to buy in on the coaching front. You know, they have to say, you know what, I'm going to go. I'm, I'm, I, I, and and uh, Kelly Wolf, the octagon agent, who I quote, quoted in that piece, you know, said, look, you know, the women, you want to find out why there aren't women coaches, you know, ask the last 20 uh, women who retired from the tour with, with reasonable credentials why they didn't go into coaching. And so, you know, the combination of women being available to coach and then also women of especially better, uh, high, more highly ranked women, you know, wanting a female coach and saying, look, you know, I think I'd be more comfortable with a woman. She might understand my issues and my, my concerns and, and even my game better than a guy. Yeah, it's interesting. I, lo- I love what you said at some at one point in the article. You said, you know, for, for women – they tend to view, and we're generalizing, obviously, somewhat. They tend to view tennis as a part of their life, right? Like, a, this is the part where I'm going to play professional tennis, and then I'm going to move on, you know, to have my yeah. own personal life. And obviously, that often entails becoming a mother and uh, um, living at home and not traveling as much. Whereas for the men, uh, you know, you could still become a father, as I did, right? And and you could still travel and be on a tour. And for me, in my case, as a commentator, um, it's different when you're, If it just is. It's just different when you're a woman um, and you've got a couple of little kids running around. It's, it's a, You hear women, tennis, you know, Serena talk about that when she talked about having her kid and then, well, look at Roger Federer, he's got four. Look at Djokovic, he's got a couple of kids. Look at Murray, he's got a bunch. They can still play. Different for women, obviously, physically, number one, but I think emotionally as well. All right, before we get into the Osaka story, which, is a, which I know what you want to talk about as well and what's happened to her, I want to ask you about your take away from the Paris Masters, a final big event uh, on the Masters 1000 tour. Of course, the ATP finals uh, underway next week in Turin. Uh, Holger Runa uh, with just an unbelievable run, beating uh, you know, Oje Aliassim, you know, Wawrinka early. I mean, the list of players he beat, and obviously then Djokovic in the final. Just a phenomenal run. For the 19-year-old, also Alcaraz, of course, who, who withdrew with an injury. Now he's out for the end of the year. What was your takeaway, B, for Holgaruna, and what do you think his potential is? And then, t- to me, still Djokovic looks like he may not be ranked number one, okay? But based on what I've seen since Wimbledon, he's still the best player in the world in men's tennis. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's much doubt about that either. I mean, right now, especially, you know, some of the other guys really haven't really kept up. What you've got is young guys pushing and coming on. Alcaraz is a real threat in terms of Djokovic's uh, potential uh, and future. And you can't just go to Tsitsipas. The guy, I mean, uh, there's got to be some bad, pure old bad luck involved in Tsitsipas's case because, you know, he's he's been so close so often and he has won a couple big titles, but there's, he's often just had had a problem. So uh, I think the, the just, look, six of the eight guys in the finals are under 26 or under. Mm-hmm. And so basically you, you're kind of looking at a potential change of the garden. My concern in a sense is that it looks like these guys in much the way that's happened kind of in the NFL is these guys have outgrown the game. The players are now, they've, out, outgrown the game in terms of what they're able to do on a court. So you get a guy like Holger Rune, and the, the guy he reminds me of in a way is Sinner. Mm. You've got these very young guys who are capable of, you know, just just blasting the ball and hitting it out of the park. And you know, they're they're so good, they're so physical, they're so young that it's it's a little bit like you know you couldn't imagine those guys, you know, a couple a generation or two ago, you know, would have had a lot more trouble cracking through to the top. Now they are so beefed up and so their training is so excellent, their technique is so good that it's almost like you know just kind of parity. It's either a great threat or a great blessing for tennis going forward. That it looks like there's a kind of a parity coming into the game that's going to be kind of interesting to observe. Yeah, and I, I took a lot of heat on Twitter, as I know you're used to. You get some of that too, Pete, with with your uh, Twitter sphere. You're, by the way, PT Bodo, P-T-B-O-D-O. Mine is Patrick McEnroe on Twitter. And uh, when I said after the match, first of all, I congratulated Rune on a great week and, you know, that tennis is in great hands because, like you said, we've got Alcaraz, Sinner, um, now Runa, uh, you know, other young players, Tiafo, as a, you know, they're a little bit older, Tiafo, Fritz, but on the American side. So I think, it, you know, as we saw at the U.S. Open, I think the, the combination of still having these all-time greats around like Rafa and Novak on these young guys is going to make for an amazing next couple of years, assuming those those two guys stay healthy. Uh, but then I also said, you know, because watching the match, particularly late in the match, it was clear to me that Runa was running on fumes, um, which was amazing that he was able to get over the finish line, especially in that last game at 6-5 in the third. So I sent out a tweet saying something to the effect of if that match had been best of five that Djokovic would have probably lost one to three games in the last two sets, which I thoroughly still agree with my own tweet. As course I should. Uh, and I, I got a lot of crap on Twitter for that, uh, from, you know, Runa fans, anti Djokovic fans or pro Djokovic, whatever it is. But I, my point is, is that, it's been proven over the last few years, especially that it's a lot harder to beat Rafa and or Novak in best of five, if they're healthy and they're ready to go. And to me, that was an example of, you know, we've seen them get picked off in these events uh, in more so in the last three to five years, you know, by the Sitsa passes, by the Zereros when he was playing, uh, but to do it in best of five. And that's why I would say for Runa, He's going to have to do a little bit more work, you know, physically. But like you said, this guy's a phenomenal athlete, amazing legs, incredible shot selection, uh, just overall, you know, electric kind of player to watch. But I don't see him beating Djokovic right now in best of five in Australia. Now, of course, you know, he could do some work in the next two months, which I expect he'll do. But the point is, is that if the Australian Open started next week, to me, Djokovic is a solid favorite. What say you? I agree 100%. I mean, you know, uh, I think with Rune, I give him a little bit of a pass on. I agree with you about Djokovic cleaning up in the last two sets if it came to that. Uh, of course, you know, uh, Rune is, you, you know, he's got youth on his side, so he's going to continue to grow into that body and develop strength. And he's, and he's finding out where his baselines are, where his boundaries are in terms of physical. And he's going to adjust to that, I think. So there's no reason to assume he won't be able to develop that stamina. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's by any means a problem uh, long-term, but I think you're absolutely right. Best of three, you know, the other thing is, you know, best of three, a guy gets hot for a set and a half, and that's, you know, game over. So uh, that's a, it is a whole different ball game. I think there's no question in my mind that that's, that's a very big thing. I don't see – well, you know, Alcaraz, I think, with Djokovic, I mean, talking about stamina, we saw what Alcaraz did at the U.S. Open. So, I mean, I think mm-hmm. you talk about kind of a beast mode guy just like Djokovic is. So, I mean, I think that's 
the major threat there. These other guys, there's probably some issues with, uh, with you know, confidence, with, uh, with, with stamina a little bit. I, I was never entirely convinced about Medvedev's long-term stamina. So, you know, these guys are all going to have to elevate their games if they're going to take out Djokovic. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see uh, the year-end championships for the men. But, of course, as we look ahead to the next major, which will be in Australia. So when we come back, we're going to take a quick break here on Holding Court. Patrick McEnroe here, Peter Bodo joining me and discuss a topic that Peter's very interested in. So am I. But this is part of the reason that he reached out to me was to speak about Naomi Osaka and where she is, where her tennis game is, and maybe more importantly, where she's going. We'll talk about that when we come back on Holding Court. And by the way, you've got to continue with Fit Biomics with Nella. I've been taking it. It is absolutely amazing, okay? And I want you to go to the website, fitbiomics.com, and I want you to put in the code for Nella, PMAC25, P-M-A-C-25, and get your discount. Because I know there was a time this summer when it wasn't in stock, but it's back. That's because everybody loves it. So keep it going. I've been taking it for the last few months, feeling amazing. Still got to work on my sugar intake. Cut that down. I'm going to get there. But Nella, the product, is next level. So again, use the code PMAC25 and you will be locked in. All right, back with Peter Bodo here, Patrick McEnroe holding court. And we get into the issue now that you wanted to discuss with me, Pete, which is about Naomi Osaka. You know, I did, uh, as I always do when I prepare for these podcasts and you reached out to me, you just want to talk about Naomi. Four majors she's won, right? I mean, two U.S. Opens, two Australian Opens. Only, she's only won seven tournaments, right, in her career, which is, which is to me, for a player of her caliber, is, you know, it's sort of a head scratcher. And then, of course, that won the BNP Paribas Open, which she won that year before she won her first U.S. Open, which is when she sort of burst onto the scene. You know, we knew about her ability, but that big tournament. So, uh, I guess, you know, maybe role reversal. You you ask me what you want to ask me about Naomi Osaka because I'm I'm dumbfounded. I mean, she's what's she ranked now? Like outside the top 50? Yes, she's, she's way down. Like, I think last I checked it was like 84 or something. But, you know, I think more, you know, to me, I mean, um, I think um, the, the, the thing I'm interested in um, for a piece I'm working on really is, you know, have we lost Naomi Osaka? And it's something that is very difficult to talk about. We don't, certainly nobody wants her to be out of tennis, but there aren't very many signs brewing that she is really dedicated or, you know, wants to, you know, come back to the game again. Um, I mean, I think to your point about the seven tournaments, there's, um, you know, I think her liabilities, her weaknesses on clay and on grass, you know, probably account for some of that, you know, right. shortfall wins. But anyway, what I'm interested in really is, you know, is how people feel about uh, whether what they've been hearing for one thing, insiders like yourself, and also how they feel about um, her, you know, most recent history, the past year or so, and, and what that might portend about her return to the game or her not returning to the game. Well, I hope she returns to the game, number one, because, I mean, there's no doubt that she moves the needle, right, for tennis. When you look at, um, you know, her following and what she's been able to do with her her career, you know, sponsorship career. I mean, that tells you, right? When companies are willing to pay, you know, whether it's her, Emma Raducanu, or you know, whomever it is, um, people are interested in you. So she's 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 got a platform. She earned it, uh, winning those four majors. You know, especially in the way that she did initially at the U.S. Open with the whole Serena fiasco, uh, which she dealt with quite well, I thought. Um, and then obviously she had her own issues with mental health, which she came out. Uh, and and publicly discuss, which I give her a lot of credit for, right? You know, tennis players often, uh, you know, as, as as athletes, but particularly as individual athletes, sort of shy away from, you know, wanting to show a vulnerability or discuss those types of issues. So I give her a lot of credit. Um, you know, when it first happened that the year, you know, a year and a half ago at the French Open, I didn't think it was handled well by the French Federation and by the other majors supporting um, them, you know, essentially threatening her, 
you know, with, um, with suspension, if she didn't go to the press conference, as opposed to trying to find a way, you know, to help a person. Uh, so I think that, uh, didn't get off to a good start. And, and to be honest, Pete, I don't think she's ever recovered from that. I mean, when you look at her results, um, you know, you see different posts from her that she's happy with where she's at. And it's, it's not just about winning and losing and, you know, all sort of positive messaging, uh, but at the end of the day, you, you just wonder if, if the, the whole process that she's had to have, to, to have gone through is it, it's not helping her in a way be the best player she can be, right? I mean, maybe she's a better person. I don't, I don't know. I don't know her personally. I don't know her well enough. Um, but, you know, it, it, it'd be nice if you would think she could find the balance of, what's helping her be a better person in her own mind, but also still be a top tennis player, you know, and, and, and I guess maybe sometimes they don't go hand in hand, but in, you would hope that in some way they would like, once you come to some realization about who you are, you know, Andre Agassi, when we, we know what he went through and then he sort of came out the other side, uh, even Serena, you know, midway through her career was like, Oh, I'm going to be a Hollywood star and I'm going to do other things. And then she's like, well, wait a second. No, I, I want to be the best tennis player I can be. What can I do to do that? What, 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 what can I do to be the best possible tennis player I can be while still be, being, you know, healthy mentally, right. Whilst, you know, not driving yourself entirely crazy. But it does take yeah. a sort of a, a single mindedness at some level to get the most out of whatever your ability is. And to me, just watching her as a tennis player, she's got the ability to absolutely be at the top of the game for a long time. Yeah, I guess the, the, the question, though, is can she actually uh, will, can she make that transition? Is she willing at some level, you know, psychologically, emotionally, whatever it is, can she actually embrace that dual kind of life and prioritize and put tennis in a certain area and her other stuff in another area? I, I don't know. It's, it seems pretty, uh, I mean, do you think she can actually be, continue to be a high impact player without playing much? I don't. That I don't think can happen, particularly when you're as young as she is. She's still young. She's in, what is she, 25? 25. So, I mean, maybe you can do that when you get past 30. Like, you know, Serena was able to do, and even to some extent, Federer and Nadal, you know, all-time greats that have done it for so many years. I don't think you can be a part-time player in your early to mid-20s or even your late 20s and and be close to the top. And she, while she's a great player and she's shown that, she's not Serena. I know Serena is one of a kind, you know, there's certain people that are one of a kind that even, even to do it in, in, in your thirties is, 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 you know, it takes a unique ability, right. And talent and confidence and you've done it so many years. I don't think she has the requisite um, years and time at the top to where she can be a part-time player. So it, but it, it, to be at the top, now she may just say, I just want to play when I want to play and be and if that's what she needs to do for her own mental health or her well-being then obviously you know do what she's going to do what she wants to do and she's made enough money so that she's got sort of the luxury to to make those decisions a little bit like Ashley Barty you know i mean different obviously totally different person but she won her majors and she made enough money and she said you know i don't need this any i don't need to do this um, and well, Osaka, yeah, I mean, Osaka could be at that same place. Um, I think, I hope, I hope she does what she wants to do. It, it seemed pretty obvious that Ash Barty didn't want to travel anymore. Didn't want to, you know, she'd accomplish her goal. I, I don't get the sense with Osaka. That's where she's at. I get the, I get the sense that she's, she's sort of struggling, battling with, with what she wants to do. And maybe she doesn't really know exactly what she wants to do. And she goes through a couple of different coaches. She brings her dad back. Obviously, her dad, you know, uh, helped her quite a bit when she was younger. She seemed happy with that move. Whether it was, a, you know, the right move for her tennis-wise, it didn't seem to be, at least, at least initially in the last, uh, you know, six to nine months. So, uh, well, I, I, think it, I think the writing is, is, is it's not quite on the wall yet. You know, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. And, and she probably doesn't know. Um, but she's certainly somebody that is people want to watch. You know, she's an explosive player. 
I mean, I remember watching, I was courtside when she beat Serena in the, in that famous U.S. Open final. And I was just there with my daughters watching who my, my, uh, and they were quite young at the time. And they turned to me like four or five games. They don't really know that much about tennis. It was my twin daughters. And they're like, dad, uh, this girl's going to beat Serena. You know, they're, they're, like they so they could just see like this girl's better. And on that day she was because, you know, explosive off both wings, you know, moves well, um, big serve. And when you look at her ball striking ability, by the way, you mentioned that she's not good on, on, on clay or grass. Clay, I can understand. Grass, she should be really good on grass. She should be a great grass court player with the way she can hit the ball early and serve and, you know, hit it clean off both wings. So uh, to me, she should be a threat at three of the four majors every year. But at the moment, that's not happening. No, I think the other interesting thing with her was well, the thing that gives me concern and makes me think that maybe we're looking at the rise and fall story here is that uh, she seems to be really cut off from the tennis culture. Uh, and that, you know, Barty, you could see because she's actually done with it and she's moved up beyond that. But, uh, you know, maybe Naomi's in a position now and in a headspace where that's what she wants to do and that's fine. But the thing is, what's interesting is that you don't see any kind of, you know, her, her most recent not since the U.S. Open has she done an Instagram post that has anything to do with tennis. Mm. And then, you know, you know the, the, the backstory, the boyfriend who, um, Corday, I think, who uh, I, I think he was, he was in a picture uh, for, for a long time, right. uh, more visibly, and uh, you, don't, you don't know what he actually even, what he brought to the table tennis-wise. Did he encourage her to play? Was he really into her being a great player? What, you know, you don't know. So it just seems now she's kind of on an island, I think, you know, island Naomi somehow, and it doesn't seem to be a lot of tennis happening on that island. Yeah, well, that's the problem. And like you said, you need to be immersed in what tennis is about. And, you know, for, for better or worse, I mean, I, I've loved it my whole life, you know, being around tennis. A certain, you know, many of us that have been lifers in tennis love it. You know, we have our distance. We keep our distance at certain times. But generally speaking, you know, tennis for, you know, I'm not Naomi Osaka, obviously, as a player. But, um, you know, traveling, meeting people, going to different cultures. Uh, you know, I still, when I go to the Grand Slam, that I see old friends that I used to play with and we're still around, you know, whether it's commentating, coach, that's part of, to me, what make, you know, being in the tennis world, be seeing people like you, right? You know, seeing Richard Evans, you know, people that have covered tennis their whole lives. Richard Evans, by the way, is another um, great journalist like, like Peter Bodo, but, you know, people that have given their life to the sport, but that's not their only part of their life. Like you said, you're a fisherman, you have your life, you have your family. I do this. I have my family. Um, but, you know, tennis is an integral part of who we are. And I think you have to love that. You have to love that part of it. And, you know, it's interesting, Naomi, because, you know, she's born in New Jersey. Her dad's Haitian. Her mom is Japanese. You know, she moved to Florida as a kid with her sister, who was also a very good, you know, junior tennis player and played in college. And, you know, she's basically American. I mean, if you hear her talk, right, she's a, she's a, she's a, she's this incredible mix of people. Um, and then she's got this Japanese background and then she decides to play for Japan, which, um, you know, more power to her, right? She can, you know, her mom's Japanese, but it's almost like you, you kind of wonder like, what, it, 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 does she know who she is? You know what I mean? Like what's her, she's, she's such an, a, an interesting mix of people, you know, between her background, um, you know, her parents and where they came from. And I did a podcast one time with a guy named Pico Iyer, who's a great writer. And he talked to me about how this was actually right in the beginning of the pandemic, but you you would appreciate that. So I mentioned it to you, Peter. And he, he talked to me about how small the world was getting. In other words, how, People were starting to, you know, you you were born in Croatia and you moved to Canada and you married um, an African and then you had kids and then your kids went from Canada to uh, Rome and they, they, they then that person married someone from Malaysia. You know what I mean? Like this whole, like the way the world has changed because of the, uh, the ability for us to move, right? Like people to move. And, and I think that the, when, you, when you think about Naomi Osaka, she's got such an interesting background. And you wonder if that's maybe part of um, how she's trying to figure it out. 
you know, her figure herself out. Like, who who am I? It's interesting you say that, Patrick, because I had a conversation just yesterday with Zena Garrison, um, and uh, you know, she basically thinks that that's a very big part of what Naomi's going through. She's trying to find out who she is. You know, the background is, you know, the biracial background and all the elements that you men- mentioned as well, growing up in different places and everything. Those are all things that you know kind of make, as you say, her wonder, who am I? And that's, I think, a very valid point in, in, in this case. And it's maybe, you know, a, a ray of light and hope for her return to tennis, because if she can settle that out, then maybe she gets, you know, realizes that, well, this is what I, I want to do and I'm meant to do. Oh, there's no doubt she was born to play tennis. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, just watch her hit. You hear the sound when she hits the ball. And it's just as clear as can be. So um, I, I hope she can she can figure it out for herself because she's an, obviously an, you know, an interesting personality, someone that even before she got sort of famous, you know, she would give you know, press conferences that were different, right? You know, she would be different in, in, in a way that, um, got people's attention. And, uh, obviously the type of tennis she can play is, is, uh, is phenomenal. And, uh, and women's tennis, let's be honest, they need somebody they need. I mean, they don't need, you know, they'll, it'll, uh, women's tennis will go on just like men's tennis will go on with no Roger Federer and then Nadal and Djokovic when they retire. But uh, right now, you know, there's no, there's nobody, that really moves the needle in women's tennis. I mean, I think Coco Goff can and will when she becomes a multiple, when and if she becomes a multiple slam champion. Igis Fiontek is clearly the best player at the moment in the world, but she certainly doesn't move the needle, at least in this country, maybe in Europe a bit more. Um, so someone like Osaka, uh, to me, is, is hugely important for the women's tour in the next five years. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent agreed on that. You know, I mean, she got so much she can do. You know, the other thing, you know, you have to wonder a little bit whether all the the phenomenal amount of money that she made has, you know, provided her with so much insulation from what we would call, you know, regular life or normal life or whatever. That you got to wonder if that isn't just a, another inhibiting factor and something that that is also a source of confusion for her. I mean, does she doesn't, you know, clearly doesn't need to to go back and, and earn money on a tennis court. So why should she do it if, she, if, if she's not that obsessed with winning titles and isn't in love with the game and the culture? Yeah, well, that's a good question. But I would say because you love tennis and you're a tennis player, it's like, uh, you know, someone, I, one of my coaches at our academy was saying to me, uh, we were talking about the men's event in Paris and then, you know, the year-end championships. Like, oh, why would, why would Rafa play that? You know, why would he play? And I'm like, uh, and, and, you know, the first thing I thought, well, well, Rafa will support the tour. And if he's healthy, he'll want to play, you know, to be, you know, get some matches and just get himself, you know, to be, you know, basically prepping for the Australian Open. But I, I get where, but then it hit me. I'm like, why would he, because he's a tennis player. Right. That's because that's what you can, that's what you do. You're, you're a tennis, but you play tennis tournaments, you play professional tennis tournaments. If you're a professional tennis player and you have to like that part of it, which doesn't mean as you get older and Rafa just had his first kid, you know, you don't pick and choose a little bit more. And when you're him, you can do that. But when you're a tennis player, you play tennis. That's what you do. 100% right. All right, we're going to go on to some uh, Twitter topics now with Peter Bodo. He's agreed to stay stay on with me um, for this segment number three of the program here, Holding Court, Patrick McEnroe. So I'm going to pull up my Twitter feed right here because uh, I've been doing this, Pete, for the last couple of weeks, and uh, the, the tennis fans seem to enjoy it. So I posted uh, some tennis topics that anyone wanted to talk about, and uh, I'll throw a few of them at you because, uh, you know, they're pretty engaging. We got some interesting fans out there. Uh, Novak's, okay, here's the first one from Certified Wise, who says to me, Novak's three-year Australia visa ban and whether he'll get an exemption in a couple of months. Peter Bodo, will Novak Djokovic be playing at the 2023 Australian Open? Right now, I would say no, because the Australians have been very, very kind of uh, pretty draw the line and stick to it about this, as we saw in, in his first attempt there this this past this past year. Now, 
they may, if they do it, it would have to be, I believe, not an exemption for him, but a change in the basic rules mm-hmm. that would that would apply to anybody else in a similar situation. Because uh, I think just in terms of saving face, and look, these big governments, governments in big countries, they actually don't care that you're a famous tennis player, as we've seen in other instances as well. As, so, we, as we saw in New York and at the U.S. Open. Right, exactly. Well, I, so, yeah, I, 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 I slightly disagree with you, Peter, and here and, and, and not on your premise, because I think you're 100% right, but on the Djokovic situation, it, it is actually individual for him because he was a guy that was thrown out of the country, right? Whereas it's like right, right now, if you're unvaccinated, uh, you can get into the country. The rules have totally changed in Australia. So if you're actually unvaccinated, you can get into the country. Whereas in the U.S., if you're a non-citizen, you cannot unless you get some exemption. So from that standpoint, Djokovic would be allowed. But because he got deported last year, there's this three-year ban that comes with anybody being deported. Now, I'm told by my sources in Australia that, that they think, a lot of them think, that because there's a new government in charge now, that they will change that ruling, that they actually have the authority to change it. So it really is, in this instance, which it hasn't been all over the world, it's certainly not coming to the U.S. for the U.S. Open or going to Canada to play in the Canadian Open. He wasn't able to do that because of the rules of the country. But in this situation, they would just have to reverse uh, the the deportation uh portion of it, which says that if you're deported, you can't come back for three years. And apparently they can do that. Yeah, I would imagine so. That, that's what I mean when I say that what they would have to do is generically change the rules so that it would apply across the board. So in other words, they wouldn't have to welcome you back, mm-hmm. but they could welcome you back. So in other words, if somebody got deported for three years because he was trying to smuggle in, you know, exotic plants, then... Right now, obviously, as of Djokovic, it appears to be an open case, not for three years. But if they change that rule, they could still tell that other guy, no, you can't. Yes, it's at our discretion that you can come back. And I think that's probably what they're going to try to angle for is to get it discretionary, but not you know written in stone that you have to stay out for three years. Yeah, my, my opinion, just again, just my, my feeling on in my opinion is that he will be he will be get back into the country and he'll be able to play. I mean, I, I hope that happens for for tennis, just for the sake of tennis and of course, a bunch of people gave me shit about saying that they should have, we should have let him into the U.S. I mean, I hope they were going to change the rule. They didn't. They still haven't. And they're actually, I think they're even saying that they're going to keep it the same at least until January um, as far as unvaccinated non-citizens coming into the country. Okay, let me go to a next one off of Twitter, Twitter topic from PJ Lewis. Uh, and I've gotten a lot of these, Pete, in the last couple of weeks. Pickleball. And it and is it hurting tennis? Courts being converted everywhere. What do you think about this pickleball phenomenon, which is uh, happening across the country? Well, I think there are a lot of unused tennis courts around the country. I'm happy to see them getting used. I mean, let's face it. I think tennis, to some degree, uh, people who want to play it can can get out there and play it. But to some, you know, um, I, I I think pickleball will. When, when pickleball has the kind of star power, when a pickleball player attains a kind mm-hmm. of a, a status at a Federer or a Serena or a <laughs> right. Pete Sampras or John McEnroe or Patrick McEnroe have attained in life. Even a Patrick McEnroe, they get that. <laughs> right. But I think there's been a transition, I think, in tennis to becoming really a spectator sport. So, you know, while I, I think the recreational community will find a way to survive, I don't think it's a threat, for instance, to the professional game because they've made that successful transition from having a base of spectators that plays the game to having a spectator base that just likes tennis. Yeah, no, I, I agree with. That. I mean, I, look, I, I'm all I'm all for people playing pickleball. I think it's great just to get out there, get a racket of any kind in your hand. Uh, I don't think it's a threat in any way, certainly to professional tennis. I think I'm hearing about it more from the standpoint of sort of, you know, tennis clubs. And obviously we have our academy here in New York. So I hear um, that, you know, our company talking about doing it in in different parts of New York, maybe not in the city. Um, But, you know, people are playing and, you know, people like to play. And I, you know, I traveled a little bit to some tournaments with my daughter, uh, who's a tennis, you know, good junior tennis player around the country. And I see, you know, in the 
these big parks and, uh, you know, facility, you know, huge facilities that you never get in New York, right? Because we don't have the land. Um, and there are a lot of them being converted to pickleball. It's happened in Florida quite a bit. So it, it, it's, a, I'm going to get someone who's a, a sort of a professional. I'm, I'm going to dive into this a little more on a later podcast because I think it's a topic that it seems that a lot of people are interested in. Okay. Another topic, um, Pete, that a lot of people are interested in happened uh, during the Paris tournament, uh, which was Novak Djokovic's team uh, making his, you know, we joke about it. Brad Gilbert likes to talk about it. You know, the magic uh, drink or the special elixir, the oh, the mixologist, he calls them. The mixologist, anytime one of these players gets a special drink, you know, they send it out to their player. So Djokovic's team uh, was mixing up one of his drinks uh, somebody was videotaping it. I, I gather with their phone. I'm guessing, um, and they saw it. This was, you know, Goran Ivanišić was there, but it was the, the fitness guy and the trainer, his manager, you know, his usual team that are there. When they saw that there was somebody filming it, they kind of like hovered around to hide what he was doing. So a lot of people on Twitter, including you'll like this uh, Twitter handle, Jukebox Hero. Spelled J E W K, Box Hero said, Gotta have a conversation about Joker's team and the sketchy water delivery. So, uh, you know, bottom line is a lot of people uh, sending this to me and saying, Oh, well, you know, what is he putting in there? Is this illegal? As we found out uh, recently with Simona Halep testing positive, these players are getting tested all the time. So if, if there was anything illegal uh, in the drinks that they were mixing, which they do for him all the time during matches, um, it's likely that he would test positive for it. Um, but what did you make, uh, Pete, of, I guess, the attention that this, this brought? Obviously, because of Djokovic, that brings attention no matter what. But what's your take on the mixologists on the Novak Djokovic team there during the Paris Masters? I see a magic. I see a magic proprietary branded Novak Djokovic tennis elixir <laughs> coming out oh, yeah. with ingredients that are as closely and secretly guarded as the formula for Coca Cola. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly, the Coca Cola formula. They'll never want to give. I'm looking actually because I have all my books down here in my basement where I do my podcast because I have that you know the Djokovic book. Um, mm-hmm. along with Hardcourt Confidential and the Pete Sampras book that you wrote, of course, all my tennis books. Um, but he, you know, talked all about his diet and, and so I, the, 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 the bottom line of it, even though it's getting a ton of more attention than any other topic, by the way, in the last couple of days, uh, here's someone else, Dovish Hawk, Joker's team, mysteriously creating a drink that was caught on camera courtside. Uh, all right, we're gonna leave, we're gonna leave that one because I don't think there's that much more to discuss. But the last one I want to get to, I think, is kind of fun and interesting. And I and I and I know from you've been around the tennis block many times, Peter Bodo. This comes from Guy McPherson, the theater of tennis, the overblown entrances, the winner immediately walking back out to center court to wave to the crowd, the constant fist pumps. The sameness of post-game interviews where first question is talk about the crowd, then acknowledge the player, etc. What say you? I say McPherson is a misanthrope. (laughs) (laughs) As we all know, tennis is entertaining and it's it's an entertainment. People pay a lot of money. You know, they, they want a chance to make eye contact with Djokovic when he rips his shirt open and bellows and looks, <laughs> looks right. I mean, you know, this is, it, 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 it's show business, you know, and there, it, there's a fine line between, you know, that you can overstep, but basically I think all those things are terrific. I, you know, I, I think it really helps. I think people have a, sense that they went to a happening, not just a tennis match. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, you know, it's funny because when I, I go back to my days working for the USTA and for Arlen Kantarian, who, when I first started in as the Davis cup captain and then took the job at player development, he was the head uh, on the staff side of the organization. And so he was sort of the guy that really brought the showbiz, you know, even to the next level into the U S open. And I remember when they first, um, 
had the players hit the balls, remember, into the crowd. And everyone thought, this is so weird. This is like crazy. And now, like, the fans love it. The players love it. You know, they sign the, the balls when they're done. They say, hit them up into the crowd. It's really become a thing, like you said, getting fans more involved in what's happening. Of course, look, I know I've had to do a million of the court, the pre-match interviews, and you know, you're like certain players aren't going to say anything. You, you know, you, you try to find something that's original or unique or, you know, get the player to show their personality. Cause at the end of the day, that's what the people want. You know, they want to see that you're a real human being, the player, not us in the media and give them something to, you know, connect with the crowd. So in my view, all those things I think are great. You know, I think they've helped tennis at the majors grow um, over the last 10 to 15 years. No doubt about it. I mean, I think you're, you know, I, I think you're hundred percent right. It's um, it's the game, the game has evolved, has evolved and gone pretty, has made some great headway in that regard. Yeah, I agree. Um, anything else on your mind, uh, Mr. Bodo, that you, want to ask me, need to discuss. You've been giving me plenty of time already, but is there anything that we missed? No, I think, I, I think we're pretty good here. Uh, it's, it's an interesting time, I think, on both tours because, you know, you have a lot of new players, some of them not that experienced, uh, haven't won that many titles at the, on the WTA side. Shriantek herself has eight titles. All the rest of the top eight have a combined nine. So, you know, things are, things are changing. It's going to be an exciting upcoming year. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to a little uh, Thanksgiving coming up. Of course, voting day here in the U.S. I'm sure you uh, voted today, Pete, as I did uh, when we were recording this. And uh, appreciate all you do for tennis. Again, it's Pete Bodo, P-T-B-O-D-O on Twitter. You can reach me at Patrick McEnroe on Twitter and also follow my partners in the podcast, Mudhouse Media uh, on Instagram and on Twitter. Pete? Uh, as always, great catching up. Appreciate you giving me this much time and uh, have a great holiday season. And I will see you. I don't know if we're going to the Australian Open, by the way, at ESPN. Uh, oh, really? We'll be covering it, but I'm not sure we'll be actually going. So that still has remained, uh, has yet to be determined, but it looks like we may be back in beautiful, bucolic Bristol, Connecticut. Well, we'll be watching it together, and uh, (laughs) thanks a lot for having me, Patrick. I really appreciate the opportunity. You got it. The great Pete Bodo here on Holding Court. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. 